This is Cabo Shenanigans, episode 774, A Conversation with Laura Martin. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 774. It's in my conversation with the acclaimed colorist, Laura Martin. I was very excited to finally have Laura on the show. She's uh, one of the last remaining uh, of the original CrossGen uh, Ruse crew that I needed to chat with uh, on my bingo card, which I mentioned later on this, in this episode during the conversation. I had previously had conversations with Mark Wade, uh, Butch Guys, and Mike Perkins about their work on Ruse, but Laura had um, was the one of the, the, the last few that I needed to speak with, her and Dave Lanfear. Um, were the last two people who were involved with the Ruse book. So I was very excited to talk to Laura. Um, she's done amazing work in comics, one of the best colorists, um, and she has you know two different Eisners. I'm surprised she hasn't won more because she's just such an amazing colorist, and she's got such amazing collaborations uh, throughout her uh, career. So I'm going to jump into the episode in just a moment. A uh, quick note, for the first four or five minutes, um, the audio changes uh, and gets a lot better after the first four or five minutes it's um we're having some issues just at the beginning and then um we were able to fix them and then it sounds extremely clear so it's a little harder to hear a little bit just for the first four or five minutes but once you get through that that point it gets super clear and uh easy to listen to from then on so if you just get through that first few minutes and it's a great conversation um i mentioned this at the end of the show but um, we're hoping to have laura back on because um you know this ended up going a lot longer in a good way um i, I think uh, she was very very kind and said you know maybe 45 minutes to an hour and we went over that and I was like you know what we're only we're only in 2005 let's let's talk more so there will be a hopefully another episode um, hopefully not too long uh, where I get to sit down and talk with Laura again about her, everything from 2005 onwards but uh, if you're looking for the early uh, the early stages of her career you've come to the right place there's a, a lot of good talk about uh, you know her her work with Wildstorm work with CrossGen and early work at Marvel so let's jump right into the episode in just a second you can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com rate and review the show on iTunes subscribe to us on iTunes and also listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks again for uh, downloading the episode, and we'll jump right into the conversation with the acclaimed colorist, Laura Martin. Laura, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you today? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. You're surviving COVID-19? So far, so good. Yep, we've been uh, pretty much isolating in place since um, mid-March, and uh, my husband and me, and we're uh, staying Absolutely. No, I guess <laughs> as this is maybe a sensitive question, but I mean, are you basically pencils down at this point, so to speak, or are you still working on projects? Oh, no, I'm still working on projects. I've actually got uh, one from Marvel that I'm working on that uh, I cannot discuss yet. Okay. Um, and, uh, and I am, have recently been in touch with a new company, which I also cannot discuss yet, but we'll be starting work on that as well. Plus, I've got some commissions that have been so very patiently waiting, and uh, now is the time to do it. So, so I've still got work to do. Um, not a ton of it, but uh, enough to keep me busy, for sure. That's good. All right, well, I always like to go back to the beginning and kind of find out when people first interact with comics or when comics first come into their lives. So how did that kind of comic book origin story come, come about for you? Uh, well, I've been reading, 
I basically made the switch from, you know, kids' picture books to comics to, to kids' comics early on, thanks to my mom buying stuff for me. Um, you know, you get your classic Little Lulu and Cash for the Friendly Ghost and, um, uh, you know, any, any, of those, any of the kids, you know, the Scrooge McDuck and stuff like that. I had, <laughs> I had drawers full of these, you know, kids' comics, and they were fun. Um, uh, I seem to remember at some point either I stole or my brother gave me one of his Conan comics. Um, and this was way before I had any idea that comics were anything other than Disney characters, you know, or these two little kid characters. Um, it, uh, all I remember about it was it didn't have a cover, it had a big splash page on the first page, and I was like, what is this thing? Why is this half-naked, and what is going on here, and why is the art so different? Um, I cherished that one for a long time and looked through it a lot and didn't really know what I was looking at because I was eight. But, you know, I still was like, what is this? But, uh, you know, as I got older, my mom bought me Mad Magazine and Archie Thomas and, you know, the age-appropriate stuff as we went along. And then once I was in high school, my friends were really into Uncanny X-Men, and I would borrow their comics. I wasn't, like, an avid reader. I wasn't like, oh, my God, I love X, you know, this, this storyline or that storyline or this creator or that writer. I wasn't, I wasn't that deep into it. I just liked... Um, you know, sharing other books with my friends, basically. Mm-hmm. And then, for a long time, it sort of dropped off. I didn't think about comics too much, uh, other than, you know, Mad Magazine, because I always read that. Um, but uh, when I was in college, um, I sort of came came back into my life in a sudden way when I began working at Kinko's. Um, I was going to school at UCF, University of Central Florida, and my friend Ian and uh, got me back into comics because, yeah, this is the image boom at this point, this is 1994. And um, uh, he and his friends, we, we all worked together in this, you know, in this one store in downtown Orlando. And uh, he and his friends were arguing over who was the better artist, Jim Lee or Frank Miller. And uh, I was like, who are these people and what are you talking about? <laughs> and of course, they immediately introduced me to everything that was, you know, Jim Lee and Frank Miller, uh, which of course was, at the time, was just switching over to, you know, recently uh, revealing the, the image lines and Jim's new stuff through Wild, Wild Storm. And, um, of course, you know, then you see Frank Miller, and I was like, well, clearly Jim Lee is better. What are you talking about? Because <laughs> I was... Because Ian thought so, and, and I was I had the thing for him. But anyway, we won't say that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Ian uh, was, of course, you know, huge into comics, and, and he would bring in these books for me to check out, and take me over to a comic shop nearby and at the time I was a um, I was a student at like I said at UCF and I was studying graphic design and um, he had been a student over at Ringling uh, School of Art and Design so he asked to take a look at my stuff and I showed him some of my artwork and my and my projects and things and he kind of looked at me and he was like have you ever thought about working in comics and I was like uh, do do what now because <laughs> uh, I, I didn't you know, like I said, I never really followed the, you know, I didn't, I wasn't that heavily into comics, so I didn't follow the artists and the writers and the creation of the comics themselves. They just magically appeared and were, you know, awesome. So I was like, what do you, what do you mean? And he said, yeah, I think you could totally be a comic artist. And I was like, well, uh, uh, okay, what does that mean? So then I began paying attention to the credits of the comics and realized that, no, Jim Lee didn't actually write, draw, color, letter, and edit everything in the in the book, there was actually an entire process and an entire team of creators who did this. 
And uh, I was in my uh, junior year at, at uh, UCF, and I was getting ready to go into my senior year and develop my senior project. And I immediately switched my senior project, or immediately asked my dean if I could do a comic book as my senior project. And um, he agreed. And so I spent the semester developing a storyline, developing uh, a, um, um, a logo for it. It was called, oh crap, no, I don't remember. Oh my God, this is so embarrassing. What the hell was it called? Uh, I'll think of it in a minute here. Obviously, um, it was a passion project. Oh yes, yes. Uh, okay, this is so sad. I mean, it's been. It was 1994. Give me a break. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, uh, and and, uh, and I and I drew. I penciled like four or five pages and inked three of them, lettered them, and uh, um, practiced digital coloring because by this time, now this is now the spring of 95. Um, Ian had responded to an ad in the back of the Wildstorm books for, uh, you know, they were basically doing a cattle call looking for colorists. He had applied for the job, and they mailed him um, a hard drive, a SideQuest drive, with a page on it. And he actually had to sit in, you know, at a computer for eight hours, open this file that they sent him on a SideQuest drive, and color it. And we timed him and watched him because he did it right there in in Kinko's in the desktop publishing department. <laughs> so uh, long story short there, he got the job and went out to California. So meanwhile, I'm still in school. I'm still, you know, finishing my senior project. He and I are on the phone every night. I'm working night shift at Kinko's. He and I are on the phone every night. He's telling me over the phone how to color comics. Uh, this was, of course, back when, you know, 9,600 bowed modems were just barely starting to you know, become normal. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there was no transferring of files. There was no, you know, Skyping or anything. So, um, so yeah, he told me over the phone how to color in Photoshop. And uh, I finished my senior project. I got an A. Um, I, and, and in that time, in those months that I was, um, that I was studying, I was literally immersing myself hardcore into as much comics information as I could glean. I was just a sponge, and I just—I went from going from casual observer to suddenly deeply involved. And uh, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, and it was all—I was image, all image, all the time. You know, I didn't—I wasn't acknowledging the other books because image was was where Ian was and where I wanted to be. It was the new cutting edge thing. It was like that's the company I want to. You know, I want to go to work for some one of those companies at Image, uh, preferably Wildstorm. So um, as soon as I graduated, I gathered up my little portfolios and I went out and visited Ian. And um, he uh, and, and he gave me a tour of the studio and I, I went ahead and did one of those eight-hour tests. They set me up at a machine in the coloring department, uh, set me down with a page and said, color this page, you have eight hours. Um, I spent my eight hours and I did my page and... Uh, um, fell in love with the studio, fell in love with everybody in there and said, I don't want to go into graphic design. This is what I want to do. Um, and, uh, you know, within a couple of months they had hired me and I picked up my whole life and moved out to California. Wow. So yeah, it was, um, being, you know, going from, like I said, going from a casual observer to suddenly immersing full bore into comics, uh, that that paid off, I would say, Um, (laughs) you know, I think so. there's times when I kind of think, well, you know, maybe I was a dilettante before, you know, because I what didn't grow up on comics like so many people in the comics industry have. I didn't, you know, I wasn't 
a full bore comics fan uh, in you know in the in the in the biggest sense of the term growing up, but you know they they were a part of my life, and it just it, it excites me now to know to looking to look back on you know the fact the fact that you know I, I colored an Archie comics cover that trips me out so hard because <laughs> that was the stuff I read as a kid, you know. So you know I I, I saw Al Jaffe in person, you know I it, it was just these things are beyond my comprehension, you know. So, uh, so yeah, it was a, it was kind of a stormy beginning or, you know, kind of a a checkered beginning, but, uh, that's, that's how it all started. When you do become, I mean, that's obviously a a fascinating period to kind of become familiar with computer coloring because obviously that's the new, exciting Mm -hmm. new technology, right? So like exactly when you're immersing yourself into this, into this kind of this whole new area of this, you know, existing, uh, medium, um, did you ever think like, you know, I'm going to move, want to move out of colors and do traditional art or were you like colors are where it's at? I'm really good at this. I'm on the cutting edge of this. I'm going to stay here. Uh, that was a, a hard switch. Um, I, when I first got the job at Wildstorm, my whole plan, my entire plan was to just be a colorist for maybe a year or two and develop my penciling skills and become a penciler mm. and then, you know, take over the world. But uh, <laughs> eventually, like on my on my um, interview at Wildstorm with Nicole Hunting, who was the HR manager at the time, uh, she said, well, your plans. And I said, well, you know, it. She said, what do you see yourself doing five, you know, two, five, ten years from now? And I said, well, in two years, I plan on being a penciler. In five years, I plan on being a pencil. you know, I plan on being Jim Lee. And uh, that, that didn't go quite as planned, but, you know, I had my aspirations. <laughs> the thing is, within those two years, uh, I discovered I was really good at coloring. And a lot of people liked what I did. And uh, I enjoyed it. So... I stayed where I was. I was even offered an editorial job at Wildstorm and turned it down because that I would have had to give up Planetary and the authority to do so, mm. and I wasn't going to give those up. So, um, yeah, I think I made the right decision on that one. <laughs> when, when you're working for Wildstorm, was there a, a moment where you kind of felt like, I've made it, I've arrived? Like, at what point did you start getting really comfortable with, with your role, or like, what was the growing pain process like, or was it even a growing pain at all, or was it pretty natural... Uh, you know, transition for you? I think my transition in, you know, from, from becoming just one of the, just one of the 20 something colorists in the pit to being the, you know, one of the higher sought after colorists was in tune with how coloring itself sort of grew and matured at that time. Uh, when I started there, we were using guides. There was a colorist who was the person who did guides. They did paper guides in ink on on Xerox copies of the uh, of the artwork, and then the color separators, the computer color separators, which was us, would interpret those guides into digital formats. So we were not creating the color schemes. We were simply trans- transferring them from paper to a digital format to be printed. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the colorist, the uh, the color guidist was the person who actually came up with the storytelling side of it, of, of choosing the colors they chose. And luckily, we had really good guidists, Joe Chido being, you know, the premier guy that uh, did the most amazing work and uh, taught me everything I know about color theory. But uh, as, as we computer color separators got more comfortable with the process and learned more to to tell our own stories we were given more freedom uh, to take on projects of our own rather than everybody, you know, rather than having 20 colorists do, you know, a page each of a 20 page book. Um, suddenly we became, we, we became um, able to 
work on our own on either small teams or individually on titles. And this was during a process where the um, color guides were being phased out. And, of course, all of this happened right around the time the D.C. Um, took over Wildstorm. So uh, it was a, there were some growing pains in there where D.C. still had color guides they wanted to use, but we had already moved past the guide stage. Hmm. So, you know, on some books we still had some guides, but they eventually got phased out as well. But I think the point where um, I sort of grew up on into the colors that I am now was probably uh, the switch from Stormwatch to... Um, to uh, the authority hmm. um, also the switch from um, or the, when I started working on uh, planetary both of those became my books and I learned by leaps and bounds on both of those titles uh, both in digital art and in storytelling um, I was asked to do some pretty amazing effects and crazy things back in old photo versions of Photoshop that didn't have all the bells and whistles that they do now <laughs> and uh, <laughs> And I, and I stepped up to the plate, and I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I was working directly with Warren Ellis and Brian Hitch and John Cassidy via email and phone calls rather than just going through editorial like we always did. Mm-hmm. Um, being given the freedom to have that sort of conversation with the creative team really pushed me um, into new into into a, a, you know out of my out of a familiar territory and into a whole new world of actually being a part of the creative process. So uh, I think that made that was that was the real big step for me was in that in that period. How daunting is it to especially in a period like that where uh, working on books like Authority and Planetary where you're you're establishing this visual you know the the color style that's going to permeate the entire book and so much of the the mood is going to come from your colors and as you said it's got to be your book you're guiding it you're the guiding force it's unlike obviously the stuff we work on with the big two where you know those are coming from an established aesthetic whereas this is you're kind of laying down your own aesthetic what was that like to kind of be able to take that on and how daunting was it to kind of relatively early in your career set up this visual style you know i think i was relatively naive to how big a deal it was um i was just super excited that i was actually getting emails directly from warren ellis telling me you know stuff uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh I, yeah i was it was i think it was exciting because i was because i was being included because you know, I was having these conversations with with John and uh, Brian mostly about you know what their thoughts were, and and I would send them you know send them versions of the pages by my versions, and they'd be like, no, do this, do something different, push a little further. But I was also getting a lot of information from the scripts. Uh, Warren was very um, very much involved in in not only explaining what he wanted on the page, but also. Um, giving me color cues, and I think that was a huge help. Hmm. Um, but I don't—I don't think I actually s- sat back and realized how uh, how much my contribution was to it until later, until um, uh, probably until I, I got nominated for the uh, Eisner. When I was, I was like, "Do what now?" Because <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it, it totally shocked me. I was like, "Okay, wait, wait a second. I'm just coloring books here." Um, but uh, you know, I, I was I was just caught up in it a lot of the time, and it, I just it was just a joy to work on with these guys, and the stories we were doing were so cool and radical and awesome. And something Brian told me uh, really stuck with me for a very long time, and I've always remembered it. He said, "You don't have to use local color. You don't ever have to use local color." Um, 
I didn't realize until later that he's actually partially colorblind and he really likes contrast more than color. So mm. uh, when we did the storyline uh, with the uh, sort of the the um, the weird British guys that came through the the rift in space or whatever, uh, and everything was red and blue, mm-hmm. that's when I was like. Yes, now I get what color can do. Now I get what limited palette means. Now I understand how I can really force color into doing what I want rather than being tied to what the world is supposed to, what the real world looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that was a that was a moment, like the aha moment for me, was when Brian said, this is comics, we don't have to do play anything by the rules. Um, and uh, um, yeah, it, it, looking back on it now, I realize how much, how much of that was, you know, was uh, how how much of a voice I had in all of it. But at the time, I was just excited to be there, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm curious. So, like, you're when you're working on those books. Well, let's go back maybe a half step. But what was it like <laughs> working at Wildstorm when they got purchased by DC? What was that like to kind of go through a shift like that where you guys got got bought by a larger player? Um. I think initially I was resistant to the idea only because I was like, oh, they're going to come in here and they're going to change everything and, you know, what's going to happen? I thought we were, I thought, I thought Wildstrom was an innovator. I thought we broke away from the big two, you know, <laughs> uh, I, you know, but, uh, but honestly, you know, meeting the, the DC guys um, were, you know, meeting, um, especially Mark Chirello was super nice and super helpful and really because I knew he understood color, he understood where we were as as the coloring team at Wildstorm, and that we, we were one of the biggest assets that they could have uh, that they got in that purchase. Um, at first, like I said, we you know we were asked to go back to working off guides, and that was I think we all graded at that a little bit because we were like, wait a second, you know what the hell? <laughs> um, and we also I think graded a little bit at the fact that. They were bringing the DC books into our department, like um, you know, like Superman and The Dark Knight and stuff like that. That we uh, and sending our quote unquote our books out to other coloring houses. Mm. I'm like, now hold on, now hold on. Y'all already have your colorists. We're Wildstorm, but <laughs> you know, we understood it. It was it was that was the call they made, and and eventually we grew into it, and it was fine. But um, yeah, at first I was I was a little. I was a little ticked off that, you know, that why, why are they sending, you know, whatever the titles were out, out to somebody else and we should be doing those books. These, these are our books. Um, but I wasn't, I didn't have, I didn't have a, a view of the big picture. I didn't know really what was going on behind closed doors or anything. I was just worried about my little team and, uh, and how, how we were going to survive. And, and, oh, my God, they're asking us to do eight pages a, a week now, ten pages a week. How are we ever going to complete that? Uh, yeah, that was funny coming from, you know, I, we were very slow. You know? <laughs> <Wild> <laughs> was produced very slowly for many years there and for, for a few years there. And, uh, and, and we got a little spoiled by how slow we could work. Um, and we went, when DC asked us, they're like, no, you, you got to you know, actually put out some work each week. And we were <laughs> like, what? We got to do what now? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was, that was a bit of a shock too. And of course, you know, looking on that back on that now, I'm like, man, two pages a day would be just sweet. Wow, holy crap! <laughs> so yeah, you know, but uh, you know, it, it was there. There was a, a lot of um, there was some transitional messiness, but it, it was ultimately it, it it came out fine. Everybody everybody worked out fine. So 
Now, your relationship as a collaborator with John and Brian obviously has obviously gone on a long time, and you guys have worked on a lot of different projects together. What, um, like, what, what kind of sets apart those collaborations from the many other projects you've worked on? Because obviously, you know, you guys came up together. You understand each other's yeah. styles. You've working together so long. It's like a long term relationship. So, how do the collaborations differ, and how did they, you know, remain so consistent and over time? Uh, that's a really good question because honestly, the two of, of our two relationships with John and John and I have continued on further projects and for longer than Brian and I have. Um, and that may be because Brian, I, I'm not sure if it was because Brian stepped out of comics for a bit and then came back in or what the story was or whether it was uh, because he was on certain books at Marvel that required um, other colorists. I'm not sure what the status was, but there were several projects in there that, uh, that Brian, um, did without me and that um, you know and then I would jump in on something else with him and it wasn't quite the same we didn't quite have the same dynamic it was like we we sort of lost a step in or we diverged in our styles from you know the point where we were really in sync to later on when we you know came back together it was like our styles were a little bit off off key maybe interesting um so I mean we're I'd, I'd love to work with him again um but uh, I don't I don't know what what we would do that would be um you know that would bring the the old the old gang back together you know it was it was really fun though working on there's a little bit of um was that planetary authority i can't remember i don't know if it's it, i would like to work with them again and see if we can you know find a common ground again but i think um by contrast with john cassidy we worked on planetary for so many years that we both developed our styles sort of at the same time and together so even during those years when I was at CrossGen and I wasn't working with John, the minute I got out of CrossGen and started working with John again uh, it was like it was like two old friends meeting up again, you know um, so I know I know what John expects and what he likes and sometimes I buck his trends but he always brings me back into line, he knows, <laughs> you know and, and I'm not going to argue with him, so uh, so even, I mean, like his stuff on Star Wars was so completely, it was what's much, much newer and fresher. You know, if you go back, you know, 15, 20 years, it's a different style, but I knew exactly what he expected. I knew what, what he was looking for and mm-hmm. I could, I, it's just a, a comfortable synergy there that we have. When you, so, um, when you mentioned, yeah. uh, quote unquote, getting out of cross gen, it made it sound like getting out of prison. Um, <laughs> Like you had been sent away for a while and you were finally coming back. But I'm curious about that, about that period because, I mean, that was probably the first time where I was – or at least was familiarized with your colors when you're working on Ruse. Um, uh-huh. Where I was, I was joking to my wife today before we did the interview that uh, you were kind of the last one on my Ruse bingo card um, because yeah. I've, I've talked to Mark. I've talked to Butch about it. I've talked to Mike. And those are kind of the three of the other kind of core original uh, creators. And you're the last one that I had to talk to about Ruse. <laughs> Um, but so uh, before we get to Ruse, like how did CrossGen come a calling and how did they kind of get you to move? To that? I'm guessing you moved back to Florida to work at CrossGen? Yeah. 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 They, they came calling three times. Um, uh, the first time they uh, contacted me, I uh, was probably, I don't, I don't know what the time period was, but it was um, not long after I had just started dating my now husband. And I wasn't willing to go anywhere, and I didn't want to go to Florida. So that was a straight-up no. <laughs> um, the second time – and Ron Mars had called me. Um, the second time Ron Mars had called me, uh, he was you know, offering a little bit 
of a better paycheck and you know a little a little bit more money and then you know, we really want you here and we'd love to have you on board and um and uh, i was like eh, uh no no i'm still not really interested <laughs> and then the third time uh was and by this time they were courting brian hitch as well and brian had signed on he'd actually gone down to florida and signed on so i was like well if brian's gonna go i guess i gotta go and i talked to my boyfriend at the time and said by this time we'd been dating for a number of months and closing in on a year and we were like well do you want to go to florida and uh they were also offering me at this point sort of a managerial position like the head colorist um with a significant um pay raise and i was like i could i could easily live in florida at that at that rate and uh randy was willing to come along with me so um so yeah we i went ahead and accepted the job wow um but somewhere in that transition Brian backed out and uh, suddenly I was like oh I guess I'm I'm going to a company and I don't know who I'm going to be working with and I don't know what project I'm going to be on and this is going to be very very strange I don't know anything of what's happening here (laughs) (laughs) now I'm going into this completely blind Uh, but I since I had said yes I was going to follow it through we already made plans to move so um, there was you know I, I wasn't just going to turn around and say no and then be left with nothing in California. So, um, when they, when they finally said, okay, you're going to be working with this, this guy named Jackson guys. Um, you're going to be working on this book called ruse and it's kind of a Sherlock Holmes thing. I was like, Oh, do tell. <laughs> um, I, now I had not known, I didn't know who Jackson guys was again. My comics knowledge is not all that familiar. So, uh, <laughs> when Butch called me the first time to talk with me over the phone, um, he had this beautiful, beautiful Southern drawl and this deep voice. And I had a certain picture in my mind, which was not what he looked like later when I met him. But, uh, <laughs> 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 I, you know, when I, when I met him, I was like, you're white. Okay. okay. <laughs> no, but, you know, he's, he's a super sweet guy. I love him to death. Um, but, uh, he, and, but it was, oh yeah, all of a sudden I was going to be on this, uh, on this, this new book with Mark Wade and Butch and, and Mike Perkins. And it was a, a Sherlock Holmes thing. And I love Sherlock Holmes period end of discussion. So, uh, suddenly I was like, Oh my God, this may have turned out better than I expected. And, um, it did. I, I absolutely adored working on Bruce. Absolutely adored it. Um, it was, it was so much fun and the world building was, was exciting and cool. And I wanted to, you know, I kept in my brain, I was, I guess that you could even say I was sort of writing fan fiction in my head because I was expanding the world just in my own, on my own brain power, just in the back of my head going, wow, what is, what are these things like in that world? What, you know, what happens with, what about, what about religion? What about, you know, these other things, these other types of cultural uh, differences in this, in this strange world of ruse. And um, so in my head, I was just creating this expanded universe of ruse but uh i was still i didn't tell mark any of that because (laughs) it was my idea but anyway uh he was yeah you know it was the the stories that we did were great and the characters were fun and and the fact that i could really dig in on one book and concentrate all of my efforts on that and on creating that with butch and mike and mark was just such a big um another a big moment in my life. I really enjoyed it. What was like, I mean, it's so, it's such a fascinating setup. Like, Crossgen's is such a, I mean, I was, 
a fan at the time and I was kind of on the ground floor. So it was really interesting seeing this this brand new kind of upstart company come out and really kind of hit the ground running in a big way and then it kind of flamed yeah. out relatively quickly. So, yeah. it's, so it's a fascinating footnote, but I mean, its model was so different than anything anyone had ever seen before. And you're all kind of working together in the same kind of area, which is again, yeah. not normal for comics whatsoever. Um, no. So what was like the give and take like working with, you know, Butch and with Mike and how did you find it kind of pushed your craft because now you're working in much closer quarters like you were used to as you said like corresponding and emailing and calling back and forth with John etc but now you're like right there with them well I was when I was at Wildstorm I was right there in the studio too it just so Mm. happened that the teams that I was working on were off site but I was still surrounded by artists by pencilers, inkers, colorists, writers in in Wildstorm as well so I was very comfortable with the studio situation Mm. Um, in fact I thrive at it I'm I'm much worse working at home by myself (laughs) Um, it's true I hate working at home by myself but uh, um, so going into CrossGen was a was very comfortable for me going you know working around other artists and stuff I know a lot of the guys that came in had been working solo for so many years and it was it was a very abrupt change for them but for me i was like hey this is great you know it's it's just like the old days which were only five years ago um (laughs) but uh (laughs) but uh it was we had a it was a it was a great concept in terms of you know sort of that um dot com feel to it where you know everybody's in the same space and we got this cool break room and we have all these 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 activities and these barbecues and all this sort of stuff um but i know a lot of the guys graded at having to be some at a specific table at a specific space at a specific time every day and you know um it, it was just sort of like i said it was just how we were each uh how we each developed in our in our professional lives prior to CrossGen. Um, I loved the fact that I could walk around and see, I mean, literally we had tack boards where everybody tacked up their artwork and we would have uh, all the pages laid out on the tack board and as each person finished their page, they would tack a copy of it up on the board. So you could see exactly, walking in any cubicle, you could see exactly where the status was on, say, Meridian. You knew that X number of pages are finished with the pencils, X number of pages are finished with the inks, the colors are right there. You could see all the colors laid out, and you could see the color story happening through the pages. So having that physical, visible reminder of everybody's working this hard made you up your game. You know, you, you walk in and you look at at, uh, at Scion. You walk in, you look at uh, at at uh, you know at, at at Scott Eaton's work or uh, what um, Paul Pelletier is doing, and you're like, holy crap, these guys are really up in the game. And then you know, to add into the mix, you've got Justin Ponzer, you've got Andrew Crossley, you've got Mike Atia, you've got all these wonderful colorists who are just you know feeding off each other and just 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 just. It was like a, a master class happening every day. And sometimes I wonder if we didn't kind of take, not to, not take advantage of it, but really I miss that kind of constant challenge to be, you know, on the top of my game and to, to see how everybody else is doing and to encourage discussion about it. You know, that was the big thing mm-hmm. um, was that, you know, the colors, we would, we would go to each other and say, hey, what do you think about what should I do with this thing or do you think is this scene too dark? Do you think I'm going the right direction with the storytelling and the color here? Um, you know, what do you, what should I do about the sky on this situation? What should I do about these effects? You know, we would we would really share 
um, a lot of information back and forth. And, um, and I think we all learned a, a huge amount and developed a great deal as colorists just in that environment. Mm-hmm. I think it was a, a big help. Now, two quick questions in the, around this period. So first of all, I mean, when you're working on Ruse, you get your second Eisner, you got the first one for Planetary. So what, first of all, you know, what was, how did it feel when you won the Eisners? And second question as a follow-up is, where do you keep them? Uh, <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, the first time, I mean, I, I literally cried the, both times I was up on stage picking up these Eisners because I was so flabbergasted at being there in the first place. Um, and, and, thankful and shocked um uh it was just i i i was just amazed that you know that i got that i was nominated as well as i'm so glad to be nominated but no i was really thrilled to win I, i'm not gonna lie <laughs> uh and uh um i honestly i don't know where they are right now i think they're in a box um only because only because in our house we my my husband and i each have an office and Two years ago, we decided to switch offices. Mine was upstairs. His was downstairs. Now I'm switching to the downstairs. But everything is still in a, in a complete state of chaos because we decided to take up the floors, and there's still stuff left in the office, and it's just a wreck, and everything's in boxes. So that's my excuse. Um, <laughs> they are in the house. They're not in storage. I know that much. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I you know I, I did I had I had the mountain display in my upstairs office when it was my upstairs office and and now it is not. So uh, once I get my downstairs office set up again, they will be back on display. Now I'm curious now for you, and I, I apologize if this in any way dredges up bad memories. But how did the how did your time at Ruse end up ending? So not Ruse, but at CrossGen in general end up ending? Uh, were you kind of one of the last ones there before it all imploded, or how did that? separation end up happening well um it started with my husband because he was working there as well he was one of the graphic designers he Mm -hmm. did a lot of the design work on uh, on all the books across the board um but mostly on the the sort of sort of second wave and third wave books that came out he did a great deal of the design work for those um but he had uh um, he had words with mark alessi i'll put it that way and uh opted to quit and that was no, was that before or after I quit? Crap. Hey, Ran. Ran. Did you quit first or did I from CrossGen? I did. Okay, so let me re- let me revise that. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God. <laughs> um, I'm leaving. I, I'm leaving that in, by the way, because that's too funny. Oh God. It's <laughs> so embarrassing. My memory is shot. Uh, anyway, no, okay, so yeah, I I was getting very um, uh, just frustrated and disappointed in how things were being run. Uh, as much as I loved the, you know, having all the creatives who were there, management was super frustrating. And the, you know, the, the issues with, with getting paid and the issues with um, expanding too quickly and, and all of the costs that that incurred and just... There was a lot of a lot of what I felt was nonsense that was going on at the upper levels that was just not truthful and not being fair to you know to those of us who just needed our paychecks. So I finally said, you know what, I'm I, I can't do this. And when they did the first round of layoffs, um, Marvel, uh, excuse me, Joe Casada happened to be in Florida, and 
um, he took a bunch of people out to to a meal and said, listen, you know, if anything happens to you guys, come talk to us. And I did. I was like, you know what? I got to get out. I'm, I can't do this anymore. I can't not be paid. So I quit at the end of 2003. It was my last day was December 31st, 2003. Um, and in April of 2004 was when Randy, because he stayed on for a while, um, mostly to see if he could get a paycheck out of them for me. Because I was still working. I, even though I quit, I was still working freelance. I stayed on negation for another issue or two. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't get paid for him, but um, uh, but and he, despite Randy's very very valiant attempts to to get me paid, um, but yeah, he had words with uh, with Mark Alessi and decided to quit that next day. So uh, it was it was a mess. It was a messy divorce. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Um, but it was also uh, time for us to move on. And even though I was frustrated with how things were run I still remember most of my time there fondly because of all the friends I made and I made a ton of really really good friends that I still am in contact with and work with today so Mm -hmm. um, I regret nothing except for um, management (laughs) (laughs) it's interesting that you put it like you know like like a divorce because I mean in you definitely won the divorce. I mean, not long after leaving, you land Astonishing X-Men working with John. And I'm yeah. curious, like, that's such a huge book. And for a lot of people, yeah. it's like, that's the X book they look at is like, if you want to give this to someone, like, this is a, a nice, easy read for anyone who might have a passing familiarity with X-Men, read this. Yep. So it's yep. such a, it's yeah. such a, such an enormously popular and extremely well done book. And you get mm-hmm. that right after CrossGen. So what was the process of landing that book? Um, was it partially because, again, you worked so well with John already or? Or was it? Yes. Was, uh, was there any discussion of them ever having anyone but you color it? I don't know whether there was any discussion other than me, but I do know that John uh, John was the one who called me and told me about it. And uh, um, as soon as he said, you know, X Men, I was like, yes. And as soon as he said Joss Whedon, I was like, holy shit! Excuse me, can I cross this? Absolutely. Okay? <laughs> hey, yeah. So uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it was. Uh, earlier on, we mentioned you, you, you made mention of my time at CrossGen sounding like you know I was getting out of jail, but it was more like it was, it was getting out of a contract, getting out of a you know of a relationship that where I was exclusive to that company for you know two and a half years or whatever. And as soon as I got out, I got to go back to my old boyfriend, <laughs> <laughs> so to speak. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was I was absolutely thrilled to you know to land that gig and to land it so quickly after leaving CrossGen. It wasn't it wasn't like I got offered the gig and then I left CrossGen. It was it happened afterward. Mm-hmm. So um, you know I would have left CrossGen either way, but uh, at that point. But yeah, coming back on on to get to work with John again was fantastic and um, and being able to uh, to jump in on this X-Men book was just it was a great way to come into Marvel for the you know if, again I had done some Mar- Marvel work previously but it was it was good to rejoin the family I mean this is a pretty huge calling card to obviously put your name on so yeah. I mean, that's a big one it's interesting yeah. too because I mean a lot of the work that you've done at CrossGen was very you know, different color palettes and something mm-hmm. that's straight up traditional superheroes, right? So now right. you get to come on and with the the splashiest kind of you know reentrance into mm-hmm. the superhero world possible. 
Yeah, yeah, it was really interesting. Well, there was sort of a, there was a point there where I was on negation for a number of issues, and that was more superhero-y. It, I mean, it was sci-fi, but it was hmm. more of a superhero-y palette than Bruce was. So there was kind of that transition period, and then went True. you know full superhero. After that, it was uh, it was fun to play in the primary colors again. I gotta say. <laughs> Actually, one last cross-gen question. So, one of the sure. one of the last few books that they ever actually published uh, was one of the I guess the, one of the last ones you would have worked on, which was Negation War. Um, yeah. I mean, when you're working on a project like that and you know that everything's falling apart, did you guys have a sense when you're working on it that you didn't even know if that issue would be published, let alone anything past that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We weren't sure what anything was whether anything was going to get published. We would just. I just did the work because I needed something to do, and um, I had hoped that you know the whole time you're always hoping. I'm a I'm a naturally positive person. I hope for the best, um, so I was constantly hoping that something would come through, that some deal that Mark would make, you know, whether it be with Disney or whoever, would would save things, would put things back on track, or would at least give them the ability to continue publishing what they were working on at the time, um, you know. I was I'm I'm a I'm a Pollyanna when it comes to stuff like that. But um, so yeah, I continued working on Negation War um, because I hoped it would see print eventually. And um, you know, even right now during the furloughs, I think if they had told me pencils down on something that I was working on, and I actually still had pages of it, I probably would have still continued working on it just to pass the time. You know, mm-hmm. just to hope that this eventually will straighten out. Um, so yeah, I mean, we didn't know whether Negation War was going to go into print or not, and uh, we just kept working on it because it was there. So, because it was there, because it was there, and you know, you get a little attached to the, to the team and the and the characters and everything at that point. So yeah, for sure. No a question. Yeah. When when um, Marvel briefly published some some uh, another Ruse book and some other costume mm-hmm. books, and you did the mm-hmm. the cover colors, what was it like yeah. to kind of reunite with the with the old crew and actually get to kind of put those characters back on the page? Oh, it was fun. I would love to be on the series. Honestly, I wish they would have put the team back together for the series, but you know, I don't know how whether that was even a consideration or not. But uh, but it was fun to to revisit those characters and 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 to be able to color. I would love to color over Butch again, honestly. Or Mike, so you know, or both of them. Um, so yeah, it was it was a it was a fun trip down memory lane to go back to those characters. When you do do Astonishing X Men, and again, like the colors in that book are so good. And um, but like, what, what was there any challenges that you found, or like lighting, like uh, in my head specifically, like the sequence when Colossus first come, we first see him, and he's kind of yes. and he runs through Kitty. Like the colors are so on point, and they make it so much more haunting. And so, mm-hmm. like, did you kind of have to go back and forth on exactly how you were going to light that, or how did that work out? It's hard to remember now, but I think John and I discussed it before we before we started before I started coloring it. I think you know I, I always revert to John's decisions on stuff like that, like you know, or I'll run ideas by him, like, hey, what do you think? Do you think we should do like a red lighting situation here? Do you think this is you know what what kind of mood do you want to go with here? Um, and uh, I honestly I can't recall what the script had said whether it was supposed to be red lighting, but. Um, but I actually took um, reference photos of like character, silver characters, like photos of, uh, of Soriyama images, and and uh, tweaked them in Photoshop so that I could see what Chrome looked like under red lighting. Hmm. Um, 
and just to get that that perfect shininess on on Colossus because that's so important for him. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think I think that was again a, a huge part of collaborating with John on just the the overall feel and sense. And John's one of those guys who loves mood coloring, so um, he's always willing to say you know go for go for something creepy or crazy or or go like I want a solid red here or I want you know this bright yellow over here or whatever. So I, I really followed his lead on that one again, and uh, um, he's just a he's just a great guy to work with because he he understands color, he understands what he wants to see said in the final piece, if that makes sense, you know. Um, so he he shares those ideas with me, and that makes the collaboration that much easier. Which uh, now this is maybe not a fair question, but when <laughs> during your collaborations both with Brian and with John, which one gave you kind of more? Uh, not edits necessarily, but more notes on specific color palettes to be used or, you know, kind of how he was envisioning the colors looking like how did I'm just curious in how those collaborations differed in terms of because, again, they, they do seem to be the ones where you had the most collaborations with in terms of actual yeah. back and forth. So I'm just curious how much that informed your work. Um, I would say that. Um, hmm, that's a really good question. Um if I may, I'm going to interject a third artist here, okay. uh, Walt Simonson, hmm. um, because Walt and I have worked on Ragnarok for 18 issues, 17 issues, whatever, and um, he and I have a lot of collaboration as well. So I want to, if I could compare the three of them, that would be probably give you a larger picture of the whole sure. of how I collaborate. Um, uh, Walt is the kind of guy who kind of lets me do what I want. He's just like here. Here's the basic premises. Here's or here's the premises. Here's the basic premise. Uh, this is the world that I have created in this storyline. Uh, you know, the, the Ragnarok is is about the 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 world of you know the uh, the Norse gods after Ragnarok has happened. There's no sun. There's no direct sunlight or moonlight. So there's no direct day or night. It's, everything is a gloaming or a, uh, a dusk like lighting. Um, everything's kind of dead go and uh so i i got to develop palettes from there and um uh and other than having some input in terms of like okay i want the the elves to look like this or i want the the dwarves to look like that he really sort of let me run with it and then um if there was ever anything that he saw you know once i sent in jpegs to him to to check out if there was anything that he said uh um usually it was um, I can't quite see enough of this character or, uh, you know, this, this part over here is a little bit too glaring or, um, you know, you missed a spot. So um, sometimes it was just usually the changes are minor like that. Uh, with John, I would often, you know, touch base with him if there was – I'd read through the script and email him if there was anything that I wasn't sure about. Like um, if the script was – didn't say for instance the script didn't cover the time of day and i was like okay let me just double check we're talking mid-afternoon here right or you know if it's if it's if it's uh, you know if it's morning in california then it's going to be midday in, in you know in new york or whatever the situation is you know just clarifying certain things like that um or if there is anything specific like okay there's this big action shot uh is there anything you are looking for specifically here um and then John will give me his feedback, and if there's any, uh, again, I'll, he usually leaves me to my own devices, but I know enough of what John likes to 
kind of guess ahead of time what he's going to look for. Mm-hmm. Um, with uh, with Brian, um, there is a lot more back and forth. Um, a lot of times, because a lot of Brian's art- artwork is so filled with details, um, I need a little more information sometimes. Like, okay, here's this, you know, here's this character. He's got this huge black shadow down the center of him. This is core shadow. Which side of him should be the lighter side? Do you want the light coming from the right or the left? So, um, I don't know what to predict with Brian on those, on things like that. And um, so, I, I want to run it by him first to make sure that I'm on, you know, that I'm doing this right, uh, that I'm interpreting what he's putting down. So, um, and sometimes, you know, there's a lot of a lot more play in how I interpret something versus how Brian sees it in his head. Um, and we, I don't say, I, I wouldn't say that we butt heads, but we do see things differently. Mm. And that sometimes can, can create a round, uh, several rounds of corrections before I finally see what he's seeing. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I think that happens early on in an issue. And then by the end of the issue, we, we sort of have worked all that out and we figured it out. And that happens pretty much across the board with any artist I, I work with. For the first time, it takes me, in, you know, the, the length of at least one issue, if not two, to really get into the rhythm of what the artist likes, how much rendering, how much light, how much um, texture, how much effects, you know, um, all of these things are, are kind of a, we figure it out as we go along at first, but then, you know, usually by the, by issue, by the end of issue two, we're in a really comfortable, um, kind of on a roll at that point. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that's yeah that's why i prefer to work directly that's why i like to communicate directly with the art teams on these things because i want to get all that way all that stuff sorted out as early as possible and make it a smooth ride the rest of the time mm-hmm. yeah when you worked with brian on um on ultimates too so you, i mean mm-hmm. that's an interesting one to me just because i mean you obviously didn't set the visual palette of that world because paul mounts right. had already done that in the first volume so yeah. what was that like to kind of come on to something that had an established visual style but still add some more elements of your own, you know, your own sensibilities as well. And how is it kind of adapting to, again, a, a pre-existing palette that was very specific? Mm-hmm. Uh, I really tried to follow the palette from what, from what Paul had done before, because I wanted a consistent, this was obviously the next volume in a, in a series. And I wanted to maintain some consistency visually in the colors with that. Um, but I, my style, my personal style is a little different from Paul's. And so, you know, I would, I would interject some of my own, um, you know, my own look and aesthetic into it. And uh, some of that came out, came across as palette changes. Uh, in, in sometimes I can be a little bit of a, uh, sometimes Paul or I can have a stronger palette or a weaker palette, depending on the scene, um, meaning more contrast or, or uh, higher, uh, stronger hues or stronger values. Um, but uh, I think ultimately, you know, I, I respected and followed the work that came before. And then, you know, as as the story went along, we sort of developed into our own um, visual language. So um, hopefully, it was a pretty clean transition from um, volume one to volume two. Um, but uh, you know, ultimately, when when push came to shove, it came down to how quickly I had to get the pages done for the deadline. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, that's what it comes down to. So at that point, I make decisions very quickly. <laughs> what was it like? During that period, I mean, so you're like, you, you know, you're working on Astonishing X-Men is kind of your primary book, but you're still getting a lot of other projects that kind of come your way, issue here, issue there, cover there. How did you kind of, was that, 
helpful to you to kind of keep fresh as well because you, you're working on a, a certain style in one book and then you have all these kind of differing different types of projects kind of popping up that you can kind of try other things kind of go, come in and out but you're also not investing maybe as much of yourself because it's not part of a longer collaboration that's a good point um uh i it, i i enjoy working on different types of projects where the art is different the storytelling is different so that um i can do different approaches like um for instance wonder woman was a completely different approach from the marvel stuff i was doing at the time um you know it was much more of a painterly style uh whereas black panther was very linear and visual and graphic and and colorful and rich um so it was hard to switch back and forth like on a daily basis i couldn't do it on a daily basis i would have to block out time for each book and then gear up slowly on the pages until I was into the rhythm of that coloring style. So um, it's very hard for me to switch projects within the same day or within, you know, a matter of days um, just because, you know, it, it just, it, I have to relearn the language sort of, it's mm-hmm. like being bilingual or trilingual. It's, it's a different visual language. And <clears throat> if I rush too quickly, everything sort of, to me, everything starts to look and feel the same. I don't know if it comes across looking or feeling the same to the reader's standpoint, but to me, it just all sort of runs together, and I don't feel like I'm as um, that I'm putting as fine a, a stamp on the style of the book as I would have liked. Mm-hmm. So you know that that frustrates me sometimes when I have to switch quickly from one thing to another. So I prefer to do fewer projects than more, um, but that isn't. It doesn't always work out that way. So, when you were working on Astonishing X Men, and obviously there was you know kind of lapses at time, not lapses, that's the wrong word, but there was kind of an uh, intermediary time between publications at times. Um, mm-hmm. Did you, when you you do cover work, how did you kind of approach that, or did you approach it any differently, or did you kind of try to take a different sensibility because it's more of a cover and it's not interior work? Did you ever approach that in a different way? Yeah, yeah, I would approach each cover, and I still do to this day, I approach each cover as its own thing, um, you know, as a completely different type and style. I, I, I wouldn't say type or style. I would say that it was a, it was a different piece of artwork. It was um, uh, a standalone piece that had to um, follow certain rules, obviously. It's, you know, if it's displaying a certain character, it's got to have that character, but it's also got to stand out uh, literally on the stands of thousands of the books. I want to be able to make it punchy and visually arresting. Um, so I spend a lot more time on covers usually than I do on interiors because I, that is, you know, the thing that catches the reader's eye. That is That should encapsulate what is in the storyline. Even if it doesn't, like even if it's just a bunch of characters standing on a rock and doesn't have anything in, this, in the interiors about any character standing on any rocks, that's fine. It's still got to capture the reader's eye and be exciting enough for the retailer to put it up front and to say, hey, this is something you want to look at. So um, covers, because they're a one-and-done thing, unless they're a series of covers, you know, like, um, what was that one that I did? Uh, I can't remember the title now. Anyway, sometimes there's a series of covers that have a visual look across the line of covers. So those, we try to set those up early on visually, like um, there are the... um, the alternate covers for uh, for Astonishing X Men that had the just two colors each. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember, I remember those. Those were those were yeah. trivia. Uh, I was like, I get paid for that? Really? Two colors? Wow. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, yeah, it, it's true. Um, 
So, you know, there's certain things like that that, you know, of course, okay, now this, okay, now we're on issue three, so this time we're going to think about this, and, and editorial gets involved in those decisions as well. But usually I do consider covers like, oh, you know, a, sort of a singular thing and make sure that that is as, as visually interesting as I can make it, you know, given the amount of time and given the artwork. So, um, yeah, I they take me longer, again, because I have to, rev up a little bit and kind of feel it out and see what I want to do with it. So, yeah. Uh, this is a very specific cover question, but when you're working on the covers to Ultimates 2, I mean, how much discussion was there between you and Brian about like it when it when the image was going to kind of bleed into the borders because obviously they had very specific borders that run all the ultimate books yeah. and ultimates yeah. too more than any i think really played with the orientation of the bars sometimes they'd be horizontal sometimes they were mm-hmm. vertical uh sometimes you had the image bleeding into it sometimes you didn't uh yeah. were you kind of picking the color of the bars because that also changed uh periodically between issues and then obviously you're coloring the image itself what kind of went into developing those because they're so different and the ultimate line in general because of having those bars typically was obviously very arresting or at least grabbed your attention because you know they all kind of looked that way yeah yeah um well the bars were all there when i got the artwork so i didn't have a whole lot of say where the bars went okay um brian made all those decisions i'm pretty sure um as far as whether they were colored or left black or whatever they um i i'm pretty sure that Brian would say, hey, let's try this out, or let's try that out, or possibly even editorial was like, hey, I think on this issue we should do this or that. Um, so there was, um, it wasn't it wasn't always my decision to do whatever it was with the bars, but I tried to make them, I tried to incorporate whatever they needed for the visual, for the final visual image. So uh, that's my long way of saying I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Now I should put as a note we've we've taken almost an hour of your time already. Um, wow. Okay. So I mean we can I I mean I could have questions for days or we can cut it off and resume at another point in the near future because we're only in the mid two thousands at this point. Yeah, it was like we only got up to like what two thousand six two thousand eight no two thousand five. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. We, we barely cracked the surface, but if we want right. we can we can uh, talk again at some point in the maybe the next weeks or months or whatever you'd like. Okay. But uh, you know, but thank you so much. I mean, this has been sure. really illuminating, and um, you know, it's thank actually you. funny that you mentioned that i think you said that brian's the colorblind one yeah yeah he's i can't remember if it's like red or green or something there's there's some he's partially colorblind so he does react much better to high contrast Mm. and and you can knowing that now you can see it in his artwork you can see how much you know how much blacks he uses, how much core shadows how much stuff like that that he uses he uses a lot of intense blacks on his work and uh yeah that's that's a lot of it right there I don't know if he ever told that or if I've been talking about a class, <laughs> but that's uh, it's the way it is. <laughs> well, it's funny because I'm colorblind myself the same way. Really? So wow. I, well, I mean, so it's so it's inter- interesting to me. First of all, to ever hear about anyone who has color sensitivity who works in comics because it's so visual. Yeah. Uh, but I'm yeah. also always curious because, like, obviously I see something different than most people. Um, that's true. But yeah. I still love your colors anyway, so that should say something. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's just always interesting because I think I read an interview a long t- time ago about uh, Tim Sale, I think, was the same idea that he couldn't really see most colors. And right, I, was, wow. I was thought that was so fascinating because of how That's he works. And when you look at his work, you can you can kind of see, oh, OK, I can kind of see where someone would come from with that. But it's always yeah. interesting to me. Well, it's funny because in, at Wildstorm, when I was there with all the colorists, one of the guys was colorblind and literally colored by the numbers, the, the percentages of ink in the CMYK setup. 
Oh wow! Um, and and had a, a specific palette that he used, and we, you know that that this particular yellow was used for this particular sky, and that's how he worked. He worked entirely by numbers. Wow! And, uh, yeah, yeah, it was fascinating. We, it was it was amazing. That is so. interesting. That someone, I mean. Okay, I, I don't mean it the way it sounds, but if you're working <laughs> in a color-dependent medium and you are colorblind, yeah. you are kind of a dis, you know you're at a you're at a handicap of some kind. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, if you yeah, if you're if you're seeing ten yeah. percent of the colors that other people have, which most colorblind right. people, that's basically what's happening. It's so fascinating right. that someone would still be able to make their living in that area and just figure yeah. out a way around it. That's fascinating yeah. to me. Yeah, it's crazy. I love it. <laughs> the wonders of Photoshop, right? <laughs> yeah, this is true. When I first found out I was colorblind, I told my best friend, he said, so what do you even see when you read comics? Like, you're just seeing the wrong stuff. And I'm like, oh, wow, yeah. that's yeah, rough, that's but it's, you know, you may not be wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> was, but at least you're reading, and that's the important thing, right? Exactly. So <laughs> well, Laura, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, as thank I said, you. I would love to have you back to talk about the last 15 years. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, thank you so much for, for uh, being on the show. Sure. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Do you take care.